Okay, the foghorn. You all know what that means. It is time for another Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, China. While most military and strategic eyes this week are focused on Russia, no one is forgetting the larger so-called pacing threat. But while everyone talks about the rise of China, and in particular, the People's Liberation Army Navy, is there a plan to deal with it? What's the strategy? We'll talk to a key thinker, Thomas Mencken, head of the CSBA Strategic Think Tank. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Widespread Russian naval and air exercises continued in multiple theaters. Garnering perhaps the most attention was a flock of warships from Russia's northern and Baltic fleets who moved into the Atlantic via both the English Channel and routes north of Scotland to a location more than 200 nautical miles southwest of Ireland in the North Atlantic. After vigorous protests from the Irish government and its fishing industry, Russia had agreed on January 30th to move the exercises from a location they'd first announced within Ireland's exclusive economic zone. Multiple Russian military aircraft also sortied to support the exercises, and most aircraft and ship movements were shadowed by NATO planes and ships. Another large exercise is taking place in the Western Pacific, involving Russian forces based around Vladivostok, while more ships are in the Mediterranean and Baltic seas. The movements have been widely covered by Russian state and international media as the crisis along the Ukraine border continues. In the Mediterranean, NATO warships gathered in the Adriatic Sea February 2nd for a photo op during vigilance activity Neptune Strike. Centered on the carriers Harry S. Truman and Italy's Cavour, the group showcased a multinational escort force that included ships from Italy, Norway, and Turkey, along with the U.S. warships. The French carrier Charles de Gaulle got underway from Toulon February 1st to begin a three-month cruise dubbed Mission Clemenceau 2022. The carrier and her multinational task group, including the U.S. destroyer USS Ross, are expected to join with the Truman and Cavour for a period of three carrier operations. And in the Red Sea, the U.S.-led International Maritime Exercise 2022 began on January 31st. The largest maritime exercise in the Middle East is running into mid-February and combines a series of Cutlass Express exercises with East African nations into a much larger series of maneuvers. More than 50 ships and personnel from 60 nations are taking part, including Israeli forces. The overall exercise called IMX is led by the U.S. Fifth Fleet with deputy commanders from Pakistan and the United Kingdom. The U.S. agreed to send a warship and F-35 fighter jets to the United Arab Emirates after a third Houthi missile attack on Abu Dhabi on January 31st. The warship is the destroyer USS Cole, well known for the October 2000 terrorist attack on the ship while moored in the harbor of Aden, Yemen. The Cole is on a regular deployment in the area and was at Bahrain in the Persian Gulf when the United States made its commitment on February 2nd. Cole, like all U.S. destroyers and cruisers, is equipped with a highly effective Aegis combat system for air defense. And in Tonga, the Australian Navy's big assault ship, HMAS Adelaide, appears to still be alongside at Nuku'alofa, dealing with a major power failure. 
The 27,000-ton ship arrived January 26th and offloaded 88 tons of supplies, but then suffered a major electrical power outage. The Australian Navy said emergency power was still available on the ship, but the service has provided little further public information. The Adelaide has been in service since 2015 and is one of two Spanish-designed assault ships in the Australian Navy. Meanwhile, naval ships from a variety of countries have been to Tonga, hit on January 15th by a nearby volcanic eruption. Navies that have contributed to Tonga relief include those of New Zealand, the U.S., the United Kingdom, China, and Japan. And that's a look at a very busy week in worldwide naval news. Switching to our discussion portion, and as we mentioned in the introduction, uh, most people are focused on Russia. Um, and so we've decided to uh, kind of get ahead of that thinking and, and look a little bit towards China, get back to what's going on uh, in the uh, Indo-Pacific area. Um, and we're very lucky to have with us to help with that discussion, uh, Thomas Mencken, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, CSBA. Among his many other qualifications, he's a member of the National Defense Strategy Commission. His most recent book is The Gathering Pacific Storm, Emerging U.S.-China Strategic Competition in Defense and Technological and Industrial Development. Um, he's a regular uh, contributor and guest on uh, Vago's uh, daily and weekly podcast. He's here today to talk about his article in the current issue of U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Magazine. Uh, that article is titled, A Maritime Strategy to Deal with China, a strategy that takes advantage of the maritime geography surrounding China and uses a combination of inside and outside forces could deter or defeat Chinese aggression. Uh, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So the opening line of your proceedings article really does throw down the gauntlet. Uh, you write, the United States today suffers from a critical deficit in strategic thinking about the most consequential challenge of the current era, the rise of China and the threat it poses to U.S. interests in the Western Pacific and beyond. Uh, you, you go on to write, addressing that deficit is a matter of utmost importance and urgency. Um, it seems that all we hear about coming out of the Pentagon and, uh, you know, when military speakers uh, get out in the public is, is that China is this and China is that, but they don't really get to what the strategy should be for dealing with China. I mean, we, we've done a good job of identifying the problems and the issues surrounding China, um, but why do you think there's a deficit of, of strategic thinking? Why are we uh, at, the, at the point where we are today? Well, that's a that's an excellent question, and and I think you know first and foremost, uh, you know, it has to do with the era that we've just gone through. You know, uh, uh, beginning with the end of the Cold War, a period of uh, unquestioned U.S. dominance, and then a period dominated by counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations. Uh, we have a a military, we have a civil service. Uh, we have a strategic community that really is unused to, well, thinking strategically. You know, it's it's uh, it's basically been a professional lifetime, whether uh, uh, in uniform or or in public service, since we really uh, had to think in these terms. So I think thinking strategically is both extremely important, and as I as I said right there at the outset of the article, I think we face a critical deficit in that right now. So I think there are a lot of people, certainly in the 20 years that, that I was in uniform, I mean, the word strategy is probably uh, the most overused term, right? Strategic this, strategy that. Um, and, and so 
What do you mean when you when you say we haven't been thinking strategically? Some people would say, well, we've been at war for 20 years. Of course, we you know had a strategy or but but I mean you're I think this point is very important to where you go in the article. Yeah, no, thanks. That's yeah, it's an excellent point. So so I look, I have a very uh, particular definition of strategy. It's not it's not it's not unique, but uh, uh, it's uh, you know it's that strategy is about how you array your limited resources in space and time to achieve your objectives against an adversary. And uh, limited resources, well, resources are always limited, you know, uh, no matter who you are, when you are, you know, even the United States at the height of mobilization for, uh, for World War II, we had limited resources. And so strategy is really about how you array those limited resources in space and in time uh, to achieve your objectives. And crucially, you know, to achieve your objectives against an adversary. Uh, to me, that's sort of the difference between strategy and planning. Planning is about how you array your resources in space and time to achieve your objectives. But strategy is all about how you interact with your, your adversary in a way that yields your, uh, yields your objectives. And we didn't really have to think that much uh, in those terms when our adversary was, was Al-Qaeda uh, or uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's uh, Iraq. Or you know, but but now, uh, when we're dealing with with China and also with Russia, but China is the more consequential uh, adversary. There's a real premium on strategic thinking, and and just at a time when we've we've really let that let that slip. So uh, Chris Cavus here. What 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 in your view? What is the U.S. strategy towards China right now? What are we doing? Well, look the the the. Uh, the, whether you call it you know, great power competition or strategic competition, look, at least there's an acknowledgement of the fact that we are in a long-term competition with China, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll sharpen it up, with the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. It's not like we're competing with all you know, 1.4 billion uh, Chinese citizens. So you know, we are in a competition, uh, and that competition is, in my view, you know, ultimately about world order, you know, the, the, the shape of the world uh, that we want to live in versus the, the shape of the world that the Chinese Communist Party would be most comfortable in. Now, with that, I think goes the increased prospect of not just uh, competition, but also conflict. And I think that's, uh, for many, that's an uncomfortable uh, topic, but we need to be thinking about that as well. But I think where we really need to, to go beyond acknowledging the obvious fact that we're competing is to ask, well, what is it about China and what is it about China's behavior and what is it about the Chinese Communist Party's behavior that really concerns us? And you know, I, I lay out sort of four things that I think if you really, uh, if you really get to the bottom of it, uh, are of greatest concern to us, whether we whether we voice it or not. And that's China's international activism, China's outward focus, right? Particularly China's outward focus in the maritime domain. In, in the Asia's maritime littorals. Uh, it's about the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is increasingly dissatisfied with the status quo. And then, you know, sometimes we like to talk about it, sometimes we don't. Ultimately, there's a whole a basket of issues that arise from the fact that China is an authoritarian state. And so I think that the, the starting point for any strategy uh, should be to ask the question, what, if anything, can we do to influence those, you know, those those irritants, those things that concern us about Chinese behavior? 
So, uh, but, but, but again, that's the situation. What do you think the U.S. strategy at the moment is? If you're going to criticize that we need a strategy, what's the strategy that we have at the moment that you're criticizing in your view? Yeah, look, yeah, look, I think our, uh, I think, you know, elements of our, you know, our strategy, clearly we're, um, we are invested in defending American lives and, and territory. Yeah, that's true. Defending our allies. Um, seems to me, though, that we haven't given enough enough thought to how to actually do those things in the the very changed conditions that we face now. You know, I think we're, we're, there still is an overhang uh, of uh, well, a belief that uh, a future war would be short, sharp, limited, dot dot dot, and and successful. I think there still is an overhang uh, belief that you know that uh, that we have superiority, perhaps in areas where we don't. Um, so yeah, those are those are I think some of the elements of of our current strategy. So you wrote in your proceedings article that any strategy for competing with China in the Western Pacific and beyond will, by definition, be a maritime strategy. That <laughs> seems to be a thought and a concept that. Um, would not be an, an operative term in what we see from the Navy's leadership and our budget situation, the resources that we're putting into the, to the Navy. So why do you think the vast majority of strategic thinkers don't seem to realize that, or at least act on it? Why are we talking so much about the Army? Why, why isn't this a big push to invest in the Navy as opposed to you know disinvest for future investments that won't be here for years. Why is that? Yeah, well, so, when, and when I write that it's, uh, that it's by definition a maritime strategy, you'll note that just, just, just because it's a maritime strategy doesn't mean that the Army doesn't have a role, doesn't mean that the Air Force uh, has a role. I think they all have a role, but the, the, certainly the, the geography, the maritime geography, the strategic geography of the theater really does define things. What you're talking about, though, I think is, is also true that we've for, for far too long, um, we've budgeted kind of by the least, you know, lowest common denominator. So kind of equal budget shares, more or less, you know, uh, they, they rise and fall a little bit, basically equal budget shares. Now, of course, it's, it's been different, you know, in the past, if you go back to the early Cold War, where air power and specifically nuclear air power was seen as the coin of the realm, the Air Force had basically fifty percent of the defense budget. Um, but I think it's it's uh, it's easier bureaucratically, more comfortable bureaucratically to just kind of slice things up more or less, you know, more or less equally. Who brings this strategy to uh, reality? Um, you, you know, the Navy has had various maritime, and I'm sort of making air quotes here on the Zoom, you know, has had various maritime strategies uh, over the, uh, the years. I, I'm not sure that you could call each of those a strategy in the, mm -hmm. the definition that, that you lay, laid out. And so who would, what would be the process without getting too wonky, but I do think it's important. What is, how do we get to a true maritime strategy in dealing with China? And, and, you know, who is the arbiter of that strategy to make sure that those limited resources are put in the, um, the perspective, the right buckets at the right time to achieve the, the ends that we're after. 
Yeah, well, first, you're right that we have a lot of, a lot of uh, documents that, that purport to be strategies that, that really aren't. You know, I mean, uh, either they're kind of plans by my definition, as, as, I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, or, or even they're just sort of like, you know, undifferentiated lists of, of uh, desirable things. Um, but uh, if, if we really are going to implement a strategy, uh, that implementation really needs to start at the top. I mean, at the with the civilian leadership of the Defense Department and the the you know the the military leadership of of the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, at least in my experience, it really does take you know that the active participation of the highest levels of leadership to uh, to move things forward. So I mean, sometimes you also get a bonus that you, you have a a president that's interested in these issues, but that's a that's a bonus. I mean, presidents aren't primarily uh, elected on on national security uh, matters, but certainly the, the the senior leadership of the Defense Department needs to be actively engaged in this. The last question I want to ask, because um, I, I what I don't want to do is do a book report on your on, on your article, because I think people need to to dive into it. But you do talk a lot about. Um, sort of the role of deterrence and the role that deterrence plays leading up to a p- potential conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how um, you, you know that plays into both the development and execution of the strategy? Deterrence is important, of course. Having credible combat capability strengthens deterrence, uh, but clearly one of our you know one of our major aims is to deter is to deter conflict. So. I think we need to think about it in, you know, in a number of ways. So uh, beyond, you know, beyond this piece, I've written a lot about the uh, the value of what we call deterrence by detection. You know, I, I, using ISR to gain a twenty four seven situational awareness in areas of, of key interest to us uh, as a way of of um, Shining a light on on activities that adversaries may may want to keep obscure to include preparations for for war and maybe in a, in a way we're seeing a version of this uh, applied uh, with Russia right now. So I think that's one element of uh, of deterrence. Uh, another element of deterrence uh, involves creating uncertainty in the minds of our adversaries. Uh, that and uncertainty in particular that they would be able to achieve their their military objectives, um, let alone at a at an acceptable cost. And so, you know, we we talk about how to take advantage of the strategic geography of the Western Pacific, as you know, as one example, to create uncertainty uh, in the minds of uh, Chinese political and military leaders. I think that's I think that's a very uh, important element of deterrence as we go forward. So there's a whole other side about these things. Uh, obviously, military capability, you're signaling to the other country's leadership um, what what you're capable of. But there's also the public relations side of all this um, to the mass media and the mass media of the world, really, in the region, wherever you're talking about. So the last couple of years, we have uh, quite publicly begun this policy of gathering of, of photo ops, um, of mass demonstrations of ships at sea. A lot of times these ships come together just for the photo op, just for some hours, then they all split up again. But but there's a message. Just recently, there was a five, five flat top, one five carriers, but two amphibious ships, a Japanese helicopter carrier, and two American um, aircraft carriers all gathered in the Philippine Sea to say, here we are. 
Um, it certainly was a gathering of maritime power that so far the Chinese Navy cannot match. Uh, and it'll be quite a while before they can put that sort of force together. But there are other, other aspects to that. There are, you know, submarines have been, are now very publicly popping up in all kinds of places. And we're usually the silent service goes out on deployment and that's the last you see of them until they come home. Um, now they pop up in, uh, in all kinds of locations for all kinds of reasons, simply to say we're out there. Um, so there's a lot of that going on. At the moment, the Chinese are being kind of quiet. And maybe that's because of the Olympics that are going on. So we're all being a little nice at the moment. Um, there's, you know, there's a story out there that has some credibility that she asked Putin to put off whatever he's doing in Ukraine, at least until the Olympics are over. Um, that wouldn't, uh, Putin knows that in 2014, that's pretty much what he did at Sochi. And Sochi Olympics ended, everybody was happy, everybody thought the Russians aren't that bad. And within a few hours, hey, let's invade Crimea. So are we looking at that again? I mean, but what do you think of these public relations strategies and their efficacy? Does it have a, does it have a result or is it just a whole bunch of people waving in the air? Well, look, I, I do think we need to be purposeful in what we show and how we show it, just as we need to be purposeful in, in what we conceal of our capabilities. Uh, and, and so, look, I mean, there, there, are, there are, you know, I say genuine uh, public relations activities, uh, but then there's, there are also, uh, we need to be very purposeful in, in what we're demonstrating. So a good example of that, that, you know, that I would cite is from uh, RIMPAC, probably a handful of years ago now, uh, when we, together with our Australian and, and Japanese uh, allies, did a demonstration of the ability to use land-based uh, air and naval assets to sink a decommissioned landing ship. So it was, you know, uh, U.S. land-based fires, and we and and there was uh, uh, aircraft involved, and then there was also ultimately a submarine uh, uh, that that delivered the final blow that sent a pretty powerful message, I think, <laughs> about the diversity of capabilities that we have uh, to, to sink naval targets and also the ability of the United States to work closely with our, with our close allies. So I think we need to be thinking about the, you know, the strategic impact uh, of these demonstrations and uh, they should be aimed at, at strengthening, strengthening deterrence. And that's, again, that, that's, that's apart from the yeah the some of the photo ops and some of the other things that go on in there. I think we do need to be uh, purposeful because I think there's all sorts of different uh, incentives that different parts of the military, different parts of DoD uh, uh, face. Right. So if you're a program manager, you want to demonstrate that your program is uh, ahead of uh, ahead of schedule, below budget. Well, okay, maybe we want to communicate that. Maybe we don't. We need to have some discipline in the uh, in the messages that we send. I want to ask one last question, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll wrap up. And I want to sort of go back to where we started. Uh, you, you know, I started by reading your line: "The United States today suffers from critical deficit in strategic thinking." Can we prevent conflict, or God forbid, defeat the the Chinese without a strategy? I mean, if we continue to sort of have the pickup game and uh, boutique efforts here and there, um, no matter how masterfully connected, if we don't get to a, a strategy along the lines of what you discuss in your article, is deterring and defeating the Chinese possible? I wouldn't bet on it, right? So, so uh, just because of the the magnitude of the, the the challenge, and and why make that bet anyway, right? I mean, yeah. so. 
I, I, my, my, I guess my view, and I'm biased, but you know, my view is strategic thinking is always desirable, you know, uh, even if there is a great um, uh, difference in power and capability between, between the two sides. But it's particularly valuable when, when that, uh, you know, that, that margin of superiority is, is thin, which is where I think, unfortunately, it is in a number of areas. So we need to be thinking strategically. We also need to be building intellectual capital. We need, we've, we've built a lot of intellectual capital on, on China, still need to do a lot more. And I would say particularly when it comes to um, the, uh, the intersection of military power, economic power, uh, that's really key. And again, that, that gets into the maritime naval realm uh, very, very quickly. So no, um, so why bet on it? <laughs> why bet on it if you don't need to? All right. Well, sir, thank you very much for joining us today. We've been talking to Thomas Mencken. He's the president and CEO, CEO of CSBA, the Center of Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, talking about strategy, naval strategy, maritime strategy, and of course, China. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. It's time for Squawk Box. Mr. Cervello has a few thoughts. In our last segment, Tom Mencken expertly covered the need for a maritime strategy focused on deterring and, if necessary, defeating China. And perhaps most importantly, he laid out the challenges and perils of competing without a strategy. But why is it so hard for Americans to think strategically and carry out strategic planning and action? This wasn't always the case. In fact, we used to lead the world in this type of thinking and action. It would seem the first step to writing this rudderless ship, as Tom discusses in his proceedings article, is to admit that we have a problem. Let's admit that false budget breakdowns of equal one-third portions for each service don't demand or reward strategic thinking. Let's admit that spending several quarters of the fiscal year without a budget doesn't demand or reward strategic thinking. And let's admit that accepting parochial service chief guidance as strategy does not promote or reward strategic thinking. I don't know if it's chicken or egg, if a lack of strategic thinking drives bad behavior or if bad behavior stifles creativity and intellect. I'm not sure if it matters or if I care which comes first. Until we abandon hobby horse politics, parochial service infighting, and a can-kicking approach to problem solving, there is no way we will develop, yet alone execute, a meaningful strategy to deter and defeat our adversaries. Let's call out the obstacles to strategic thinking and get serious about problem solving. Time is not on our side. Indeed not. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>